So yes, we're starting this series, and I'm calling it The Gathered Church. Um, just uh, full disclosure, right up front, let me tell you what my, my main aim here is in doing this series. This is definitely a, a pastoral move on my part. Uh, my aim is this. It is to remind us why it is so important for us to regather fully, consistently, regularly as a church. It's been a long, what, 19 months now? I don't even know what, 18 months for sure? It's been a long season of disrupted church life. And I know we're not out of that yet, all right? So let me just say, this is not a guilt trip uh, by any means or a ploy to say, forget about COVID, right? But it is, a, I think, a, an encouragement and maybe an exhortation to say, we can't go on without being the church indefinitely. It's bad for us. So somewhere in the middle of balancing all that, like being, being aware of the reality of the world that we live in right now, but, but maybe uh, as aware or even more aware of the, uh, the reality of, of what we're called to be as the church and why the church is so needed in this world, especially now. Uh, I'm, I'm just praying that the Lord will encourage us to, uh, for lack of a better phrase, get off of our couches and get back to church. Not just to be attenders of something, but to be something, what God has intended for us to be, what he's called us to be for his glory and for our good, and yes, for the good of the world. So that's my goal. I want us to recapture our ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is a word that just, it's a, it's a theological word that means the study of the church. And as a church at Edgewater, that's always been kind of one of the things in our DNA is we've had, we've had like this sense that we have a, a, a biblical ecclesiology. It's important to us to have a right understanding of the church. But I know that after 18 months of disruption and what happens in the city in 18 months, people go People move away, new people come. Uh, it sort of dawned on me, we probably don't have a really clear and strong ecclesiology together as a group, so let's revisit it. That's the goal, all right? So what's the church? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And really, over the next few weeks, more specifically, what is a local church, all right? The church is both a universal thing, it is God's people worldwide and throughout church history, anyone who's a believer is a part of the church of Christ, but local churches are specific gatherings, tangible expressions of that people of God that you and I can actually be a part of week in and week out. So the Bible uses metaphors, several different metaphors, to describe what the church is, and these descriptions are certainly true uh, universally of the church, but I want you to understand that they are applied and really only practically applied locally in the church, the local church. We've talked about some of these metaphors already this morning. I want to just highlight a few. We're called the body of Christ, the body of Christ with Jesus as our unifying head, right? And then this diverse and, 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 and necessary makeup of all of the parts, that's you and me, that make a body whole, right? Just like your body has different parts, different functions, the church has that same kind of makeup that make us a whole body with Christ as our head. Those are descriptions from Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 5, for example. Church is also called the bride of Christ. We've mentioned that this morning, meaning that we have been betrothed to Jesus. We belong to him, but not just belong to him, we belong to him in this covenant relationship, he being our bridegroom, we being his bride. He has made us pure as his bride. By his sacrificial uh, death for us, his love for us, we see those descriptions in 2 Corinthians 11. Ephesians 5 in particular, and Revelation 19 and 21. The church is also described as the temple of God. The 
temple of God. What is a temple? A temple is a dwelling place for God, right? We are the temple of God with Jesus Christ as our cornerstone, with the apostles as our foundation, and we then being the structure that's built upon that, being built together into that dwelling place for God by his Holy Spirit. We're his temple. We see those descriptions in Ephesians 2, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Peter 2. We're also called the flock of God. I love this metaphor. It's a beautiful metaphor where we see Jesus as our chief shepherd who's a good shepherd, a shepherd who lays down his life for his own sheep, and he says his sheep know him. They know his voice. They listen to him. They follow him. They obey him. John chapter 10, Acts chapter 20, 1 Peter 5. Those are just a few of the metaphors that Scripture uses. There's many more. There's many more. But these are, these are key ones. Body, bride, temple, flock. And I bring them up because they're helpful in, in framing our understanding of who we are as the church of God, right? Every one of those things tells us a little something more. It's like, a, it's like a different facet of the jewel that makes up what the church is, and we can understand it by looking at a different angle. Oh, as a flock, we're, we're sheep who need a shepherd, and we have one, and he's good, right? We're a bride. We're loved. We're cherished. We're nurtured. We're purified, right? Every way we look at that, I love how God uses metaphors to help us understand. But this morning, what I want to do is I want to focus on another of the metaphors that we see in Scripture. As, as we think about who gathers, what is the church, I want to focus on this one, the description of the church as the family of God. Okay? We're a flock, we're his bride, we're a temple, we're his body, but we are his family. I'm going to put this up on the screen for you. Just a couple of these verses. 2 Corinthians 6, the Lord says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Matthew 12, stretching out his hand towards his disciples, Jesus said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister. These are family words. This is family language, right? Ephesians 2, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Deanna read this for us earlier. But you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're members of his household. Family language. So let me this morning do this. I'm going to quickly cover four things about the church as the family of God the family of God, that I pray will give us all a greater appreciation for the gathered church and for the beauty and the importance of each of us as members of this gathered family, all right? So here's the first point. It's this. It's that God calls and saves a family to himself, not just individuals. God calls and saves a family to himself, not just individuals. You need to understand this. If you look at Scripture and you get a clear sense of a, of a, of a, of a theology of, of God and his working with his people, he's always related to his people, not just as individuals, but as a corporate body. We just finished the study of Genesis over the summer. If you were here, you may have noticed that God's call on Abraham and the covenant that he gave to him, the promises that he made to him, were not just for Abraham, but were also for his, what? His family. For his family. A family through whom God promised to bless all of the other families of the whole world. We saw that in Genesis chapter 12. And when we look at the Old Testament, we see really that the, the whole rest of the Old Testament is the story of God's subsequent call and dealings with that family. Namely, the people of Israel. He rescues them as a family. He establishes them as a people. And while it's true that God relates individually and has related in the Old Testament individually to members of that family, and certainly we can see examples of him holding individual members of that family accountable for their own sins, 
It's not to say that he doesn't deal with us individually, but clearly and most often we see him dealing with his people collectively as a family, as a people who have been knit together by his covenant. And then when we get to the end of the Old Testament and we get into the New Testament and Jesus enters the scene, he reiterates that same call towards a people, towards a, a family or a body, a call to himself. In Matthew 16, he says, I will build my church. I will build my church. And in the original Greek, the word translated in English as church is the word ekklesia. That's why I said earlier, we're going to talk about our ecclesiology, the study of the church. Ekklesia is the Greek root of all of that. And that word means a gathering. It means an assembly of people. Jesus says, I will build my gathering of people. And Ephesians 2, which I wanted you to turn to Ephesians, we're, we're going to get there now, is a good place to start to look and see the corporate nature of our salvation in Christ. So on page 976, if you're using that pew Bible, follow along with me. Again, this is what Deanna read to us, so I'm going to skim over it a little bit more quickly because it's a long passage, but I, I hope you remember the things that, that Deanna had said to us. Remember this familiar passage Verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the son's obedience, among whom we all once live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is a description of who we are outside of Christ. This is the, this is the pr prior to being saved by the grace and mercy of God, we are under the wrath of God because we're sinners. And we desire the things of the flesh. That's a description of who we are, right? And then we have this tremendous and wonderful turn in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And of course, we've been now seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Now, I, I wanted to point this passage out because I know it's a familiar text to, to Christians. And if you're new to the faith or not yet a believer, this is a tremendous text to look at to see what God has done, what salvation accomplishes, how he transforms us from under his wrath to under his grace and makes us his people. But here's what I wanted to point out. I think we read that text so often, because we're so familiar with it, we read that through individual eyes. So in other words, we may come to this text and say, this is my story. This is what God has done for me. I was once this way, and now I've been, by God's grace, transformed into this. And I want to affirm that. That's all true if you're a Christian. But notice this. The language in this text isn't individual. It's corporate. But you verse 1, is not an individual or a singular you, is a plural you. You, as a people, were once like this, and now God has made us, collectively, as a people, alive in Christ. And I want you to look down at verse uh, 18, I believe. Let me look there. My glasses, make sure I'm right in that. Number, verse 19. Notice again how the collective nature becomes really obvious here in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. Notice the plural nature. With the saints and the members of the household of God. You are now built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God has sent his Son to save us from our sins to make us into a people who are being built together 
as a dwelling place for his spirit. So yes, does God save you individually? Absolutely. But don't stop there. Because God's vision for salvation of his people goes way beyond that. He has a corporate intent in mind. And why is that so important to understand? Because I think Western Christianity, modern Christianity, has become far too individualistic. I can't tell you how many times I I hear people say, you know, of their faith, well, this is just between Jesus and me. This is all about Jesus and me. Don't don't tell me, don't impose on me anything else. Don't, don't, I don't have to care about what anybody else says or thinks or does. This is between me and Jesus. And that's why so many people, especially in, our, in the younger generations, are walking away from the church. It's interesting, many who are walking away from the church are not saying that they're walking away from the faith. Although I would dispute that. But what they're saying is, I want to maintain a level of spirituality. I want to maintain a level of connection with, with, with God. I want to have a faith. I believe in God. I just don't want to have anything to do with organized religion. I don't want to have anything to do with the church. That's a very individualistic mindset. And we have to understand this. It is completely unbiblical. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. The Bible has no category whatsoever for a believer who does not belong to and participate in the local church, in a body of Christ. And what we're going to see as we move through the rest of the, 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 the points here today, and really over the next six weeks, all that we're going to be talking about about what makes the church the church, we're going to see that everything really that we're called to do as followers of Jesus is dependent on us being in relationship with God and one another to accomplish. The things that we're instructed to do to follow Jesus, to to be his disciples, to do the things that he does, you cannot do in a vacuum. And you're specifically called to do in the church. So what makes a church a church? Second point. God orders and empowers his family. God orders and empowers his family. You probably don't need to flip a page. Look over at Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay, so Paul is now saying authoritatively what I just said pastorally. What we're called to do, you can't do in a vacuum. Here's what you're called to do. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Walking in a manner worthy of the calling means being gentle, humble, patient, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit that makes us one under our common confession. Can you do that by yourself? No. So, in that call to this clearly corporate thing, what does Paul say? about how the church should look. This is what I mean by the church is ordered. Look down at verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. But rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together, by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see the body language here. This is, this is one of those key passages that uses that metaphor. But it's clear what he's, he, he's saying. There's an order to this thing. There are teachers, there are apostles, there are shepherds, there are, there are, there's leadership to this family. And their job is to equip the members of this family to do the work in building up each other so that we all grow up into mature Christ-likeness. And when we're all doing that, it works. The clear implication is when we're not all doing that, something's wrong. It's not working, right? In the absence of either order and empowerment, you just don't have a biblical definition of a church. In the absence of this structure with clear designated leadership and discipleship and unity, you don't have a church. And I say that because, listen, there's lots of ways in which Christians uh, will, will, will function and will gather together we can do that individually. We can do that sometimes with each other that are, that are all good, yet in and of themselves don't constitute a church. So hear me out on this. Your small group is not a church. Meeting with one another, Christian moms at the park for fellowship and encouragement, it's not a church. Attending your campus ministry, it's not a church. Sitting in your living room, watching a live stream, listening to a podcast, that's not going to church. Those things, again, are good. They're outflows of church life. They're the fruit of what the church does in building one another up and in growing together as one. So they're all valuable things, but they are only parts of the whole that God has designed with a certain structure and a certain order and an empowerment of not just this segment of people or that segment of people, but the whole body, the whole body together as we use our spiritual gifts to look like what Ephesians 4 has just described for us. Every recognized member, every recognized member, together, unified, serving, loving, making it all work together under leadership, makes a church a church. There's other things that make a church a church, and we'll get to that, but let me give you a definition of some of those more broad things. This is, I think, a good definition of what makes a church a church taken from a new book called Rediscover Church by Jonathan Lehman and Colin Hansen. And I'll put this up here. A church is a group of Christians who assemble as an earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom to proclaim the good news and the commands of Christ the King, to affirm one another as his citizens, through the ordinances, and to display God's own holiness and love through a unified and diverse people in all the world, following the example of elders. Now that is a uh, man-derived definition, right? It's a biblically informed one, but I think this is a helpful one. And I want you to know, this is going to kind of frame where we move forward from here. It's going to help put feet to what we're going to define both today and over the next few weeks all right what is a church what makes a church a church this needs some explanation but the 
I think the basics, the framework is here. We're going to look at other essential elements of a gathered church in the coming weeks, but for today I want to examine two more from this definition of a church. Here's the first one. God endows, this is our third point, God endows his family with heaven's authority. God endows his family with heaven's authority. In Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, Jesus uses this interesting phrase. I want to show you these verses. I'll put them on the screen as well. Matthew 16 is in the context of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Remember Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You are the Son of the living God, right? In that context, Jesus responds to Peter's confession by saying this. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. That's where he says it. On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You say, that's an interesting phrase. What does that mean? He says it again in Matthew chapter 18. This time in the context of church discipline. In Matthew 18, familiar text, Jesus says what happens, you know, what do you do when, some, when your brother sins against you? You go and you, 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 you let him know, you confront him one-on-one. If he doesn't listen, you bring somebody else along. If he still doesn't listen, right, there's, there's steps that are taken here. If we sin against one another, in that context, he says, if that brother refuses to listen to the group of two or three that you've now gone to him with, he says, then take it to the church, tell it to the church. And if that person who sinned refuses to listen even to the church, this assembled, the whole body, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, no longer affirm him or her as a member of this assembly. Put them out. And he uses this phrase here again. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does that mean? What does it mean by Jesus saying he's given us the keys of the kingdom as a church? By giving us this authorization or authority of whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, he means that the church, and uniquely the church, is qualified to make certain judgments concerning what is a right confession of the gospel. That's from Matthew 16. Peter confesses, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And that's where Jesus gives the first authoritative call here. You, can, you have the keys of the kingdom to bind on heaven, on earth, what is, uh, loose on, whatever, you know what I mean. <laughs> and then in Matthew 18, a right then uh, not just confession of what is the gospel, but who belongs, who is a part of that gathering, who's a citizen of the kingdom. Now again, I, I find Jonathan Lehman's work here helpful as he explains more of what this means. He says, Jesus didn't mean that churches ultimately make people Christians or make the gospel what it is. Rather, Jesus meant that churches can make official pronouncements or judgments concerning the what and the who of the gospel on behalf of heaven. What is a right confession? Who is a true confessor? How do we do that? He says a church makes these judgments through its preaching and the ordinances. And I think he's right. When a pastor opens up the Bible up here and says, Jesus is Lord and says all have fallen short of God's glory, and faith comes through hearing, that pastor is echoing heaven's judgments and binding the conscience, then, of everyone who would call him or herself a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Such preaching points to the what of the gospel. It's a heavenly confession. Likewise, when a church baptizes or enjoys the Lord's Supper, that's what we call the ordinances, 
it renders heaven's judgments over the who of the gospel. Who are the heavenly confessors? That's what we do when we baptize people into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. We are collectively affirming this person represents Christ. This person speaks for Jesus. And we repeat that process through the Lord's Supper. Every time we take that together, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. That's Paul's instructions for communion in 1 Corinthians 10. Partaking of the one bread, in other words, both sheds light on and affirms who belongs to the one body of Christ. It is a church-revealing ordinance. And when we pray together in our worship services, when we confess together, when we give thanks together, these two declare the judgments of God. We acknowledge who he is. We acknowledge who we are. We acknowledge what it is that he has given to us through Christ. Even our prayers of intercession, when aligned with his word and spirit, demonstrate that our ambitions have been conformed to his judgments. When we sing together, we're repeating his judgments back and forth to one another and back to him in song. And when we declare his judgments in our lives throughout the week by the way we live in the world, how we're being shaped here and how that, how that, that forms us into being holy people who live before the world in a way that brings glory and honor to Christ, that again, is a declaring of his judgments of the kingdom of God in the world. So in other words, you could say that's what we call the worship of the church. The worship of the church is its agreement with and declaring of the judgments of God. You could say that the church has become then by God's authority, get this, the representative mouthpiece of God in the world to declare his judgments about what is and what isn't or who is and who isn't included in the kingdom of God. That's a mouthful, but did you just catch the weight of that? If that's who we are as the church, we are the mouthpiece of God in the world to declare his judgments about who is and what is the kingdom of God, that's heavy. And all that is based on the final authority, of course, of Scripture, not just our judgments, of Scripture and the unity of the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who leads us together corporately into truth, which is another reason why we need each other for the fullness of the Spirit's work and gifts to make those right judgments together. He leads us corporately in that way. Listen, is your salvation received by faith and faith alone? Yes. And is that an individual act of belief? Yes. Yet, Jesus also says that the ongoing affirmation of that belief, of that declaration or proclamation that you have trusted Christ as your Savior, the ongoing affirmation and assurance of that faith is dependent upon the judgments of your brothers and sisters. Rightly ordered and empowered as a family. And that interdependence finds its locus in the local church. I think that's amazing. I think that's amazing. We need each other. God has designed us to need each other as an affirmation and assurance of our faith. He's endowed his church family with heavenly authority. We'll get into the, more of that as we go along. That boggles my mind, but we're going to move forward to the fourth one. Here's, this is kind of like the big umbrella. God is glorified and blesses the world through this family, his family. Ephesians 3, you're probably there. Look at verses 20 and 21. It says there, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, 
according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is one of the sort of the great doxologies of Scripture here. You say, may God be gloried forever and ever. Amen. Through Christ and in the church. That's heavy. How is it that God is uniquely glorified in the church family? I think it's precisely through our status as a family. How is he uniquely glorified in us, his family? It's because we're a family. It's because we're a family. A people who have been united together by the Spirit as one in the Father under the headship of our elder brother and Savior, Jesus. There is a beautiful genius in the corporate family dimension of God's plan to be glorified in and through the church. Beautiful genius. Think about the world that we live in. Boy, you don't have to think long and hard about this one. The world that we live in is essentially one big collection of broken relationships, right? Because of the self-grasping nature of sin, we are surrounded by discord. We are surrounded by disunity on all sides. We have broken marriages, broken families. We have divided nations, divided political parties, divided social classes, divided ethnic groups, divided genders, and a a myriad of, of other differences that are just broken and divided. That's pretty much the story of our world. And because of that hostility, the world is darkened. It's darkened. And yet, in that sin-stained, broken, divided world, God inserts a family. God creates his church, and that church is uniquely situated and equipped to dispel that darkness. How? Because there's a distinctive unity that when the church is functioning as it should, and we have to highlight that, when we're functioning as we should, there is a distinctive unity that permeates this family. Not division, not hostility, not brokenness, unity. In the church, relationships that were once broken apart through Christ have been reconciled into one body. You say, how? Through the cross. Through the cross. Ephesians 2, again, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The cross of Christ is the ultimate unifier because the cross of Christ is the ultimate display of love. The love of God. And it is that same love that you've been called to as a family that will then reveal the glory of God most strikingly in the world, bringing a blessing to it. How are we able to dispel the darkness? Because we have a love that is light. The love of God that conquers the darkness. The apostles of the New Testament church are constantly reminding us of this. They're constantly informing us. This is what our call is. Look at, I'll put a few on the screen. These vigorous calls to pursue love as the family. Paul says in Colossians 3.14, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Church, put on love. Church, owe no, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
Church, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another, 1 Thessalonians 3. Peter echoes this. 1 Peter 4, above all, church, keep loving one another earnestly. John echoes this in 1 John 3 and 4. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And all of this rooted in the words of Jesus who says to his disciples, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Can I just go back to John's words there in 1 John 4? Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. How did God love us? You could look back down at Ephesians 2. You probably still have it open. We were so unworthy. We were under the wrath of God because we hated God. We hated one another. Divided, broken by sin. I mean, we were a mess. But God, in his rich mercy, what? He loved you. To paraphrase what Paul says there through the rest of that passage, through the cross of Christ, by the shed blood of Christ, he picks us up, he dusts us off, he makes us new, he puts us together as a family and says, you once were not my people, now you are my people. I am your God, you are my people. That is how God has loved us. And the New Testament is a call then as that people of God to love each other in the same way. Do you think a love like that given to unworthy, divided, broken people, dusting them off, making them new, inviting them into the family, do you think that would be a striking picture in the world today? Yeah, and you know, it's the only place that can happen in the world is in the church because it's the love of God that makes that possible. The world is pining to see something like that. And they can see it, Scripture tells us, right here, when the church is the church. My mentor, Tim Savage, wrote the Little Gospel Coalition booklet on what the church is, and he says this, this thing at the very end of his booklet. I want to put it up on the screen. I think it's a, it's a really helpful quote. He says, To catch a glimpse of the local church whose members interact lovingly with each other, pouring out their God-given gifts into each other's lives, showcasing in their relentless self-sacrifice the cruciform love of Jesus himself. In other words, he's saying, when we do what is said here in 1 John 4, because God has loved us this way, we love one another that way. When the world catches a glimpse of a church like that, they see what they lack. A love without which souls wither and die. A love for which all people, whether they know it or not, passionately crave. And that's the love found exclusively in the local church. This is how God is both glorified in the world and blesses the world through the gathered church. In Ephesians 3, Paul says there, to me, I am the very least of all the saints. This is verse 8. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So he's just setting us up here. He's saying, I have been given this apostleship, this call by God to declare to you the mystery of God, the big plan of God, the big idea. This is what God is doing. This is what he's about. Paul is about to open the vault, reveal the classified information. This is top secret, but top secret no longer. What is it? 
that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The church, being the church, reveals the manifold wisdom of God in the world. God calls a family, not just individuals, to himself. He's ordered that family. He's empowered that family. Right? He's given us heaven's authority as his family to bless the world. What does that mean for you? How does the doctrine of the church which is corporate by nature, impact us individually. Three quick application points, real quick. Here's the first one. Christian, if you're a Christian, you belong to a family. You belong to a family. In a broken world, so many of us don't feel like we belong to family. Or even if we do, we have so many issues in that family, it's hard for us to comprehend that that's actually like a good thing, <laughs> a thing to be valued, a thing to be cherished. But we all recognize that when we lack family belonging, there's a hole in our hearts that can't really be filled by anything else. except to be given a new family with a perfect father, with a perfect elder brother, and a perfect unity that even though stretched as siblings sometimes in the temporal, will be perfected for the eternal. You belong to a family. Your faith is not just your own. You're one of us because of him. Secondly, you're a part then of the greatest work of God in the universe. If the church is the place in which the manifold wisdom of God is being revealed, not just to the world, but to the, the, the heavenly authorities, the, the, the principles and powers, God is saying there's something so cosmic happening here in the church that speaks to the universe about the love of God and the plan of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is where God's love is being revealed. This is where his wisdom is being revealed. This is the place that's the foretaste of heaven in the world. The wisdom of God. The reconciliation of all these broken relationships. Right here, you can see it. It's the biggest thing God's doing. And Christian, you're a part of it. So thirdly, you're needed in the gathering of God's family. You belong to the family. This family, that's the greatest thing God's doing. You're needed in the gathering. I know I'm speaking to the choir because you're here this morning. Maybe I'm speaking to some of you who are out there this morning. Although even those who of us are here, I know that these last few months there's been a lot of inconsistencies and for some good reasons. I'm not trying to lay the guilt trip again. I just want to remind us if this is what the church is, this is what God's doing. We are needed here. None of these things happen unless we're gathered together as the body. If the body isn't being the body, this stuff doesn't happen. So, I want to encourage us. Next week, we're going to delve into that question a little bit more. The subtitle of next week's sermon is, What if I don't feel like going to church? We're going to talk about why do we gather. 
but pray that God would continue to give us a vision for what this thing is and give us a passion to pour our lives into it as the greatest thing that God is doing. Father, I ask you to help us as we move forward. We look to Jesus' promise in Matthew when he says, I will build my church. And we know that because you have said that you will build your church, Lord, your church will be built and will endure to the end. But Lord, we also recognize that that doesn't mean that every local gathering of believers will endure because, Lord, we have to believe you, we have to cling to you, and we have to obey you. We have to value and to cherish what it is that you've put together in these local assemblies. We need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received, as Paul has said. So, Lord, I pray that you would find this church faithful to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And yes, Lord, we recognize that these last few months and the disruptions of these months are outside of our control. And, and Lord, we don't wish to be foolish about how we navigate a global pandemic and all the, all the risks associated with that. But Lord, we pray that you would preserve us. And that even if we've had to separate and slow down in some of the gathered family life that we wouldn't become comfortable doing that. That we wouldn't take for granted and lose sight of how the body needs to be the body. So just compel us, Lord. We want to see more of you. We want to see more of Jesus. And we know that one of the ways that we do that is through this family who represents him and loves one another with his love. So build us up. Glorify yourself in our midst. And help us to be joyful participants in this family that you've called us into. I pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.